Okay then, so for those of you who are following along, this is uh, Nitzavim, and it's the word for, oh, looky there. You guys know what that is, right? It's like a deformed milk cow. <laughs> that is not a deformed milk cow. <laughs> that is a uh, flu virus. So there you go. So what's the deal with the flu virus? How big do you suppose that is? You can put like a thousand of them on the head of a pin. Yeah. Right, it's very, very small, very small. But they're, you know, they're pretty interesting looking. But one of those, one of those teeny tiny itty bitty little things can bring you down. And if you get it, yeah, she gets it all the time. If she gets it, then everybody else around her except me get it because of that. Can you put a hundred or a thousand or 10,000, I don't even know how many, on a head of a pen? So it's just one little thing. And that's actually uh, what Moses is talking about right now, is it's one person. You know, you think your sin is just between you and the Lord, and it's not, because your sin affects your family, and then it affects your city, and then it affects your nation, and it can bring the whole thing down. So he's uh, at some point here encouraging you uh, not to do that because it's not just you. He talks about secret uh, and revealed sins, and that's one section of tonight we're not going to get into because it would be two or three nights because it's really interesting. But uh, that's why I found that. Okay, so <coughs> it's called standing is the section. Nitzavim. Uh, and it's Deuteronomy, it's those. I'm sure you've already got it from the thing I sent you. So this is the last day of Moses' life. This section and the next two, which in, you know, in the year, um, which is a whole other issue. After we're done with that, what do we do? But we'll talk about that later. Um, last day of Moses' life. So he's, he's making these concluding remarks, I guess you say. And the remarks today start in Deuteronomy 29, chapter 9. And it goes like this. Keep, therefore, the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all you do. And that word keep, of course, is shamar. You guys probably know that. And it means to guard or protect. So the last words of Moses to us are to guard the words of the Lord, to guard the commandments and do them. You know, hearing his instructions, knowing his word, walking with Jesus doesn't save you unless you do them. So he's instructing the people on the last day of his life. Look, these, this is the most important thing I can tell you. Guard them life because if you don't do them, your life is over. So the people um, are justifiably alarmed by what they've heard, what they are about to hear and what they've heard for the last few weeks. Because remember, these are the last days of Moses' life and he's laying it all out there for them. You know, and he's told them a couple of weeks ago, you're going into the promised land, but you're going to blow it. And in generations, you will walk away from the Lord and the Lord will come and throw the people out of the land and it'll be ugly. So don't do that. But he said, you will do that. 
And he's been telling us to, you know, this, to keep the commandments and all this stuff. So the, the people he's talking to, realizing it's Moses' last day, and realizing they're about to enter the promised land, and realizing God is no longer going to be in their camp, and they're sort of on their own, and they're entering a land of milk and honey, and this uh, Moses told them that because they will be so prosperous, because the land will produce 30, 60, 100 fold, because their life will be comparatively easy to what it's been, you're going to walk away from the Lord. So the people are alarmed. And that's why this section is called standing. Because as the people are alarmed, Moses goes on through this Torah portion and the next to... to both tell them all the horrible things that are going to happen, all the stupid things they're going to do, and through it all, they will wind up standing because that's what he's asking them to do. Look at the last 40 years. Look at your bondage in Egypt. Look, at, look back as far as you want to go, and you will see how poorly you've done, how you have not kept the commandments of the Lord. You've sinned regularly in huge ways and then he says look around you're all standing here the other people the the Amorites and the Jebusites and the people who live in the land they're no longer here but you're here so he wants them and by association us to remember these things. We are to know his commandments, instructions, and judgments. We are to guard and protect and teach and keep them. We will fail and God will continue to help us to stand. And it's not because we're awesome people, it's because he's an awesome God. And the Israelites, this group of people, and by definition, uh, those of us who have come later that choose to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we too will do all of those things. And yet, Moses is telling him at the end, we'll be standing because God is going to make it so. And it's not because you are awesome or I am awesome or they were awesome. It's because God is awesome. So it's the same story. It's both a prophecy that looks bad and it's an encouragement that looks good. So uh, he's talking about keeping the commandments, uh, doing the commandments, and again, most people are. Most people, certainly most Christians, but most people on earth, couldn't name the Ten Commandments, even the Ten Simple Commandments, let alone all the other stuff the Lord has asked us to, the, the way he's asked us to walk. And that's what Torah means, is it's from Yara, which means to throw a finger in the direction you walk. You know, listen to you guys talk, oh, the, the barn over by the fishing hole, and I drove on the golf path, and I, you know, that's the Torah. It's not a law. It's a, this is how you should walk. So he gives us all these things to help us walk in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. So Moses is telling us that the Lord will not abandon us, but we still need to keep his commandments. And he is going to show us mercy. So how do you weigh that? 
Because some people will see that and go, oh, well, I'm good. I'll just do what I want because he's going to keep me standing at the end and have mercy on me. Well, that's not entirely true. <laughs> there you go. It's all about your heart. It really is. If your heart is bad and you're saying, that's we're going to talk about this, the bad seed. If your heart is bad and you say, doesn't matter, he's going to bless you. He's going to keep me standing at the end. He'll have mercy on me. He's not going to have mercy on you. And you will be cast into the fire with the rest of these guys. But if your heart is good and you're genuinely trying to know what the Lord is asking you to do, you're genuinely trying to walk in the way he wants you to walk and act in the way he wants you to act, and of course you'll fail. And of course the nation will fail. And of course God will have to bring you into some sort of bondage again so that you cry out to him. But if your heart is good, he's not tallying the mistakes. He's trying to teach you. So if you remember, Jesus would later go on to say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So the, the, the question is, or the way it looks, is that we must not love him because we don't. We don't even make an effort to keep the commandments. We barely make an effort to keep the 10, let alone the other stuff that he said. And it was interesting last, whenever it was, yesterday, the day before, when that cop was, you know, in, on trial, convicted of murder, given 10 years, and the brother on the witness stand asked the judge if he could hug her because he had forgiven her because he's a Christian and he didn't want to carry this all his life. And I guess in his mind, he must have believed or wanted to believe that she legitimately made a mistake. And even if she didn't, he didn't want to be burdened by the guilt of, you know, or the hatred of hating somebody. I mean, it's too much work. So he, of course, and I'm sure you've all seen that on the news. I mean, it brings tears to your eyes. And she ran to him. She couldn't even believe what she was hearing, I'm sure. And then the judge comes down and hugs her and gives her a Bible and tells her, this is, now she's got the time to, to figure this out. You know, she gave her her Bible. Yeah, start there, she said. <clears throat> now she's in trouble. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the Texas Attorney General has said he will defend her to the death. She did nothing wrong. So, and she didn't. She did everything right. And he did everything right. And how this woman got to a place where she could find herself in a situation like the A, she killed a guy that she shouldn't have done, and B, to see this Christian forgiveness played out. And it's on TV, everybody in the world has seen it. And it has to be from the Lord. There always is a plan. I mean, he's, he, doesn't, he doesn't do things randomly and he doesn't make the mistakes. So anyway, I thought it was interesting that that happened. You know, this but it doesn't matter what Torah portion you're in, I'm sure it would have applied, but this week it seemed particularly appropriate. So Moses says, in regard to this Torah portion, everyone, including the little ones and the strangers and those not yet born, need to hear this. And if you recall from the various feasts and whatnot, the Eastern minds, specifically the, the Jewish mind, um, they don't have words for grandfather and great-grandfather and 
It's father. It doesn't matter how many generations up or down, it's my father. They don't see things the way we do, all compartmentalized and all that stuff. So it says, and those not yet born is us. I mean, he's talking to us because we have not yet been born, but we were in the loins of one of these guys. And that's, um, you know, when you see stuff like that. And that whole concept, the, the, the Eastern mind, to me, it just makes complete sense. We get all wrapped around the axles about, oh, it's my third cousin twice removed on my mother's side from her previous husband. No, it's my brother, <laughs> or it's my sister, or it's my father, or it's my mother. Those are your only options. It's, it's you know, that's all there is. And there, in, in, when we do Passover, you're not supposed to understand Passover, and we've talked about this before, you know, as a feast today, you're supposed to understand it as if you left Egypt, you were in bondage, you went through the Red Sea, you did all those things, and that's how they see it, because you did do it, because you're in the loins of your father. And it doesn't matter how many generations back it was. So Moses is speaking to us. And one of the things, I mean, one of the, the big, the, the beginning topic in this uh, lesson is he's telling us that come the time of the end, we will still be standing. You know, don't worry about how imperfect you are. Worry about how much, how, how your heart is, how much you're following after the Lord. Are you truly seeking it? And it's not a, it's, it's not a test when you get to the end. If you've, if you've failed, and I'm guessing almost everyone in this room has failed once or twice, that doesn't matter. As long as you, you, you repent, you bounce back, you learn from it, you seek the Lord. He's not asking you to be perfect. He's just asking you to pay attention to be part of the deal. So he, he goes on to say, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, home-born home or stranger, adult or child. We all have responsibilities to the Lord and he has responsibilities to us. So a, a, a six-year-old child will interact with the Lord differently than perhaps one of us because we know more and have done more and have seen more. And it doesn't matter. He's not discounted because he's young and inexperienced or naive or any of the things that you would associate a child with being. A stranger might not know the context and the culture, but if he's, you know, if he's interested in following and learning, those are the things the Lord's looking for. And that's what Moses is saying. We need to constantly be on guard to do, first of all, to know, but to do the things of the Lord. And that's what last week was, was blessings and curses, right? There's, he's laying, and he's doing it again this week. He's laying before you a blessing and a curse. If you obey, it's a blessing. And it's not a tit for tat thing. Okay, if you obey, I give you a blessing. It's if, if your life functions in the things that I ask you to do, your life will be a blessing. It may not be smooth. It may not be pain-free. It may not be exactly the way you'd wanted it, but it will be a blessing. Or on the other hand, if you choose to ignore the things that I've told you, your life will be a curse. It's never going to be smooth just because you're not doing the things I ask you to do so that it would be smooth or and again, it's not 
smooth and easy, but you know, you all know what I'm talking about. We can deal with things that people without the Lord have no way to grasp. They just, it's like this guy, you know, on the, in the courtroom. How do you, you know, how, the world sees that like he's crazy. Why would he forgive the, the lady who killed his brother? But that's how we're called to be. The brother's dead. This guy did it. There's nothing anger or love is going to do in regard to the brother. But it's going to make a huge difference, to, not only to that 18-year-old's life, but to the people around him. And you saw almost immediately he, was, he, he received the blessing by forgiving this, this woman. And then the entire courtroom did. And pretty soon it was on all the news stations and pretty soon the whole country had, you know, and, and it's probably gone over the, all over the world. So in 24 hours, this guy has blessed maybe a billion people just because in his heart, he wanted to do what the Lord asked him to do. And it very seldom works that quickly or with that quantity, but it's the same idea. We do what the Lord asks and there's a blessing. When we don't, you know, there's a curse. I saw the Amish do that one time. Uh, there was a child yeah. that got murdered. Yeah, there was a whole bunch of them in yeah, a school. Yeah, they totally forgave. They got in their little buggies and drove to the, the wife's house of the guy and, you know, just totally blessed her. And, of course, the world didn't get that either. And the news media is all alarmed and, well, that's the way God works. So it's us, typically, and the world, and even the churches, and of course the enemy, who change the meanings of the things that the Lord says. And the, the world, and, you know, and again, even, even churches and stuff, tend to take all the world's wisdom and mix it up in the truth of the Lord and then spit it out on Sunday or people tell their friends or neighbors what they think, you know, God is or what they think God would do. Well, it doesn't matter what you think or what your church thinks or your friend or your family or your father or your mother. It only matters what the Lord says. And we have to be able to separate the truth of the Lord from the wisdom of the world. And I only know of one way to do that, to know what the Lord says. And if you don't understand his commandments, instructions, statutes, and judgments, then how can you separate the world from the truth? And I would suggest that you can't. You know, several times, just in, in the last few weeks, and probably dozens of times throughout Scripture, you will read in your midst, because that's where it usually happens. It's easy for us to identify an enemy who's outside. But when the enemy is within, when he's in the, the garden with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, when he's in the church, saying, oh, no, 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 that's not right. When he's your family or your father or whatever, twisting the things of Scripture, those are the ones we have the biggest problems with because we want to trust the guy in the midst of the garden. We want to trust the pastor at the church. We want to trust our, our family or, or friends. 
but often they don't know. You have people telling you what the Bible says that have never read the Bible. How is that possible? They're experts and yet they have no idea what it says or who even God is. So Moses hits again that through all this, the people on the outside, the people on the inside, the foreigners, the family, all of the mixing and mingling of the world, all of that is, is going to lead you astray. He didn't say it might. He didn't say it could. He said it would. It's going to lead you from the Lord. And the Lord will have to come and punish you because you, you can't do, you cannot say you're walking with the Lord and not do it. As it was, wasn't it Ezekiel who said, or one of those guys, if, if you want to follow Baal, follow him. If you want to follow the Lord, follow him. But don't do both. You cannot do both. You can't follow the things of the world. You just can't. Because that is worse than saying, I'm a complete pagan. Don't say both. So the Lord is saying, if you do, which when you get right down to it is what most Christians are, they're in that middle ground. They're not fully holy. They're not fully sinful. They think they're probably more holy than they are. They think they know probably more than they really do. But the Lord said he will have to come and punish you because you're, you're not doing the things that he had asked you to do. And, you know, we're mostly parents here. We've had to punish children and punishing your child does not mean you don't love them anymore. You punish them because you love them, right? And that's what the Lord is saying. I will punish you, but you're gonna be standing at the end of the punishment. It's the ones who maybe don't get punished because they don't even know the truth they're following Baal. They're not interested in the Lord. Those people aren't going to be standing at the end. So we tend, uh, when we look at 21st century American Christians or even Europeans, or we tend not to look at our heritage or our progeny. You know, we live today and we try to deal with today the best we can deal with it. And whatever that means, it means something different to all of us. But Moses is saying we, we need, and this is the Eastern mind again, we need to be tied to the past and to the future. We need to understand what happened to the people in the past, what the Lord did with them, how he dealt with them, the lessons he taught them, the things that they saw and felt and, and did. We need to understand that because... How we understand that affects the people after us. It affects our children and their children and their children's children. And it's that same idea of everyone is a mother, father, brother, or sister. There's no, you know, 14th generation cousin twice removed. They're all related. So the stuff, and that was the little back, uh, virus thing. One little thing. You know, things that happen in our lives affect my daughter. And the things, I should be looking at the things that affected my parents and their parents and their parents to learn from that, to be able to not make those same mistakes again. And we don't do that. That is not a Western mindset. That's not a Greek mindset. Greeks, 
which is basically what we are. We tend to follow Greek philosophy and it's, you know, youth and beauty today, baby. It's whatever you can do today, you know, and don't get old. You can, that's, that's a bad thing. The Israeli mind or the, the Jewish mind, the biblical mind, values the previous generation and the generation before that and the generation before that. Old people are venerated not because they're easy to get along with, but because they have all the experience. They've already got the knowledge. Why do I need to relearn all this stuff when I could just talk to my dad or my granddad or my great granddad? You know, they are the Lord working in such a way with the people. And yeah, we came out of Egypt and we saw the, the Red Sea parted and we went to the bitter waters and Moses threw a wood cross in and made it sweet and, you know, all this stuff. And that's why often in scripture, you'll read when something happens, they build an altar, right? They take 12 stones, one stone for every tribe, and they build an altar. And it will always say, or almost always say, so that when your children ask, what meaneth by these stones, you can tell them. Right? This is the place where the Lord stopped the Jordan River so we could cross when we came out of the desert and came out of Egypt and, you know, go through all of this stuff. The 12 stones that we just read about last week that, that have every word of the Torah written on it. What, 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 what does this mean? What do these words mean? Well, these are the words of God. This is how you're supposed to live. You should read these things, you know, and that's how we should live our life. And kind of sometimes we don't. You guys will go out and go to a family reunion with 50 people or 70 people or 100 people or something. That's awesome because you learn from all those people, right? You don't have to make the same mistakes they made or maybe they know stuff you don't and they can teach you how to work on that 48 Alice Chalmers tractor. Or, you know, I mean, that's the, the way the world is. And we understand that. But as Americans, we seem reluctant to do it. You know, my granddaughter, you try to help her. No, 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 I want to do it. Great. 27 minutes later, you haven't got the zipper zipped yet. I want to do it. That's how we are. Or you hear people say, Google it. Yeah. yeah. Search it. Yeah. <laughs> so ask an old person like me. It would be easier to ask somebody who's been there and done that. And that's what... That's what Moses is saying. You know, don't try to reinvent the wheel here. Uh, Hebrews 7, 9, and 10 says this. And as I may so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithe, tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. And I only mention this one because it's it's exactly what they're talking about you've got levi and abraham and melchizedek three completely different generations separated by a thousand years or something and they're they're treated as though they're all in the same room you know levi paid the tithes to melchizedek a thousand years before <laughs> because he was in the loins of his father which wasn't really his father it was his father's 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 father but that's how they see it. He was, in the, he was in the loins of the father. So what the father did, he did. 
Well, that's awesome if the father's doing well. <laughs> when the father's a bad seed, that's a different issue. John 15, four through six, it says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more uh, can you except you abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If a man abideth not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered and men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. So this is that same idea. And you'll see this if, you know, if you're, <laughs> if you're reading the Bible in Hebrew, you'll see the word Zerah almost from the first uh, uh, couple verses in Genesis. It's the word for seed. And the Lord made it clear he's building this house and he wants his family to come because a house to a Hebrew is all the good things in the world. It's the mother, the father, the children. It's safety, protection, wealth, comfort. It's all those things that you hope a home would be. And it, he almost immediately equates that with the seed. Because what do you do? You plant a seed. And what happens? A tree or a plant of some variety grows. There's a trunk. And from the trunk, there are branches. And then typically there are leaves and flowers. And the flowers turn into a fruit or something. And within that device is a seed. And the seed falls to the ground and creates more of the same plant, right? It doesn't, you know, an apple seed doesn't grow an orange tree. It grows more apple trees. So the purpose of the roots and the branch and the trunk and the leaves and the flower and the fruit are only to bring forth a seed so that that seed can create new life. That's the picture that you will read throughout scripture is, is if you look, if you're looking for tree and seed and branches and roots and leaves and vines and you know, words like that, and if you find them and go back to what it is he's talking about, it's always this idea. Well, you want it to be a good seed because if it's a bad seed, there are a number of verses that tell you about that too. And if that seed is bad, the things are harvested and thrown in the fire. So you don't want a bad seed. You want to make sure it's a good seed in the New Testament builds on all that stuff in the Old Testament. And you, you see that the enemy has sown tares, you know, from Matthew 13, I think. The enemy has sown tares in my field. Well, what should we do? Should we dig them up? No, no, you can't dig them up. Because if you dig them up, you're going to root up the, the wheat. So what you do is you let them grow together. And then when harvest time comes, you take the tares, you cut them down, you throw them in the fire, you put the wheat in the barn. That's kind of the way it works. You see this, you know, the vine and that Jesus is always on about stuff like that. Um, you'll see that picture throughout. And we, I think, I mean, I assume, because I always did, you, you, you don't, we don't look at it other than, oh, wow, there's a tree in the front yard. You know, there's a meaning to all this stuff in scripture. And it's never just about the tree or the vineyard or the seed or the branch. There's a picture and the picture you can see it in the, the, the seed, the branch, the, the root, the, you know, all that stuff. As the plant grows, you can see it um, with 
the family, you know, I'm, I'm a result of the past and she's a result of me. You see this picture all the time and it's, you see it so often in scripture. It's, and I, you know, and I'm embarrassed that I have read it a hundred times for how many years and not really picked up on the meaning. There's a much bigger pictures than we tend to see. So we need to look at all of that. Anyway, Moses goes on about, he says, you, and, and this isn't this, again, this is the same thing. He's talking to the children of the people who were in the Exodus. These children, for the most part, were not ever in Egypt. Most of these children were born in the desert. Now, some of them were because it was, you know, anybody over the age of 20 died. So there are some people there that would have represented the older people in the group because they might have been up to 60. Maybe those people did see Egypt. But Moses is saying, you were in Egypt, you saw idols. You should be able to tell the difference. And he's, th he's saying the same thing. I mean, I know you weren't, but your parents were. You should still have the knowledge that they had. You should be able to tell because Egypt was full of idols. The world is full of idols. We should be able to tell the difference between the bad seed and the good seed. The idol and something from the Lord. Why would you go after the idol? And yet... Moses will say, you will. He doesn't say you might. doesn't say it could happen. doesn't say you could be tricked. He says you will. And that's going to result in the Lord having to chasten you. And he will do it because he loves you. So get over it. That's what's going to happen. It would be ideal if you could see the idols, recognize the stuff in the world, and avoid it but we won't. Okay, so he goes on to talk about these detestable idols, inanimate blocks that don't speak or breathe or think, and how the, the pagans cover them with gold and jewels to make them appealing. So beware. And that's, again, we talked about this a week or two ago, sometime, I don't remember, when um, the warrior sees a beautiful woman from the, you know, the opposing team and brings her to his house and and that the, the women, these pagan women, would often get dressed up in their finest shiny clothes, it would say, and uh, paint their faces, and they would look good for exactly this reason. They look like these shiny, gold-covered, jewel-impregnated idols so that you will take them to heart, and then that's bad. So it says, beware. So then he goes on about the, the most susceptible to this kind of failure are the, the roots. And it, in, in, in the King James, it's translated the root bearing gall and wormwood. Well, I, I don't know. I don't think we have any gall or wormwood planted in the garden. So I'm not totally clear on exactly what that is. But it doesn't sound good. So this word gall, words, translated gall and wormwood in, in Hebrew, arash leana. So rosh you've got, head, beginning, um, primary, important, you know, it's that word. Leana is um, the curse. So rosh also can mean inheritance. 
so in Hebrew, it reads the root bearing uh, inheritance of the curse. And for some reason in King James, and I assume probably a lot of those, uh, little Jimmy Strong translated that as poisonous plant. And Rosh is one of those words you go through the uh, ancient Hebrew lexicon of the Bible and you flip to word 1438, I think it was. And there are three pages of definitions for Rosh. Head, beginning, inheritance, uh, important, all this stuff. Three pages of those. None of them have anything to do with a poisonous plant. So I'm not clear on why it's translated that way other than to make the point these are you know the bad seed brings forth bad fruit and he described it as gall and wormwood when in actuality it says it's the inheritance of the curse so you think about that from the garden on it's that same concept you know you can be you can be fooled by the world this guy who's in the Holy of Holies, he's in the place where the, the, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil are, the midst of the garden, he's in there spreading bad information. And we tend to buy it. And so in little Jimmy Strong's defense, that is a poisonous plant. But that's not what it says. It's the inheritance of the curse. So the worst thing is a bad seed. It infects the family, the city, the nation, and it's just like one little virus. You know, it seems so insignificant, and yet it takes takes her down, and then takes her down, and then because they're down, there's no babysitting, and then kids got to go somewhere else, and they've got it, and they give it to the babysitter, and then they go to school, and like all the kids have got it, because one little virus. It's the same thing. So. How does the bad seed happen? How do we get a bad seed? Because God didn't create you as a bad seed. Somehow, something has happened. And if you recall from last week, um, there can be no salvation without repentance, right? We all agree with that. You have to know what you're repenting from. If you don't know what the Lord said, if you don't know his commandments, statutes, judgments, and instructions, you don't know when you've transgressed the rules. So you would never repent. And if you don't repent, there's no redemption. And if there's no redemption, there's no salvation. So this bad seed comes, or at least that's, I think, the case Moses is trying to make. This bad seed comes from not knowing the word of the Lord. It's pretty simple. Just learn what he says. He's not asking you to keep it a thousand percent, to never fail, to never mess up. He is asking you to know it though. And when you do fail and mess up, then you seek forgiveness, you seek repentance, and you are forgiven. Salvation is on your horizon. But it, the bad seed doesn't even know what he said. And if the bad seed doesn't know what he said, he would never repent. And if he doesn't repent, he can't be saved. So he's the bad seed. Which strikes me as a perfect picture of the 21st century American church. Because we don't know. 
we take we take the pastor's word for it or we take the you know the self-help book the christian self-help book we read or <laughs> well is that what the lord said maybe i mean i haven't read them all but i've read enough of them to know that was one of my gigs when we were in santa barbara it's the pastor people bring pastors books all the time oh i read this it was so good would you read this well, I don't want to read it. I don't have time to read it. So they would always shuffle it to me because I enjoyed reading it because it was always fun to me to circle these things and put a big question mark. And it's like, really? You believe that? So I got to read a bunch of those books and some very, very, very popular books that made a huge difference in people's lives. They were so excited about the book. They brought it to the pastor to show him, look, this is awesome. And I would read through these books and go, oh my gosh. Did this guy never read the Bible? You can't say that. You can't do that. That's not what God said. But man, it's presented in a great way and it sounds good and it makes sense to, you know, to the secular worldly mind. Oh yeah, it sounds like it's godly because they're trying to get you to stop or start doing something. But you just have to be cautious. And it's so much simpler to me, I would think, just to read the Bible and see what it says instead of reading 147 self-help books. But, okay. Deuteronomy 29:19 says this, and it came to pass when he heareth the words of this curse that he bless himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace though I walk in the imagination of my heart. This is Moses 3,500 years ago talking about people today. He hears the words of the curse and I think I'm doing pretty well. I'm happy with myself. I'm at peace. How many people, and it's easy to pick on people at church, but it's, you know, there's all... all Almost everyone on earth is that way. They are happy doing what they think they want to do. We saw a, uh, this was years ago, um, some wag set up a camera and a microphone in front of St. Peter's or whatever that giant church is in New York. Catholic church, of course. When it was, uh, mass was over. So thousands of people are pouring out. And he's just stopping random people. How do you get to heaven? 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 He asked 100 people, how do you get to heaven? And 99 of them said some version of, well, you have to be nice to other people. The golden rule, you, you know, if you're nice to other people, one person said it's only through Jesus. But that's, you know, that was a Catholic church, so maybe that wasn't fair. But that's basically the way we operate. We think if we do things that we think are nice, then we're golden. It doesn't work that way. I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of my heart. Gosh, that is how we are. Because we do the things we think will get us to heaven. Well, it doesn't matter what you think will get you to heaven. What does God say will get you to heaven? Not good works. I mean, good works will follow because if you walk in, in, in the Torah of the Lord, good works will just flow from you. But that's not how you get there. I think good works comes from getting there. Yeah, well, it does. 
That's what the Lord is saying. That's what Moses is saying. That's, for, you know, that's what they're always saying. Good works will follow you, but you can't do the good works to, you know, that's putting the cart before the horse. Okay. So he follows this up talking about these people who think in their mind, they're peaceful, they're totally peaceful. And I, you know, I just have all these pictures of people that I've known over the years in church that don't have a clue what the Bible says. And they're just completely peaceful. They know they're with the Lord and they know they're going to heaven. And, and I hope that's true. I mean, I don't mean to imply that maybe that's not, although maybe it's not. But you have to know what the Lord says. You can't just think you're a good person and go to heaven. So he follows this up in verse 20, talking about these people who think, you know, the, the imagination of their mind, they're peaceful because they think they're doing well. This is how he describes them in verse 20. The Lord will not spare him. But then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man and all the curses that are written in his book shall lie upon him and the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven. Bummer. And they were so peaceful. They're such nice people. I mean, they even have a plaque on the back of their chair because they donated so much money. They're awesome. Except, you know, I, I, in, in my mind, I visualize the person that passes on is now standing in front of the Lord and the Lord is explaining or doing or whatever it is the Lord is going to do. And this, you know, I always see it as an old lady with a fur coat and gold chains, but it's probably a guy. <laughs> will say, oh, no, 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 that's not right. <clears throat> Excuse me? You're telling God that's not right? You know, I, I don't know. I, I have to make up little games in my head. But that's this. I mean, blot you out from under heaven because you were peaceful thinking you were doing the right thing. Depart from me. Oh, man, yeah, exactly. Depart from me. Okay, and in the course of this, it's, uh, and I've been meaning to mention this for, I don't know, six years. I never do. Um, the word translated as curse, I'm sure you all know that word in Hebrew. Aleph Lamed Hay, and it's pronounced Allah, is the word for curse. The word for violence in Hebrew is Hamas. <laughs> Just thought I'd throw that out there. Wow. Um, yeah, and every time I run across it, I forget to tell you. <laughs> but I made sure to tell you this time. Uh, so the Lord is saying, you have to receive his seat, his good seat. You cannot mix it. You cannot mingle it. You can't take the things that the world tells you are good and mix it up with the things the Lord says are good. Because I will guarantee you, and Moses has said this, the things the world says are good are not good. And if you mix them, you are walking away from the Lord. And this is a bad thing. Matthew 15, 13. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. I don't care where you get this seed. If the seed does not come from the Lord, the plant that comes from it will be rooted up and burned. Okay, Moses talks about uh, secret and revealed sins. Interesting study, but we won't do it tonight. Um, 
Oh, and it says the word is near unto us. It is not far off. And that word is rakok. And it's not far off in time or distance. Because in Hebrew, there's a lot of words that work that way. That it can mean in time. If it's not far off in time, it could be, you know, it could be soon. And the word is not far off in distance that you can't get to it. It says it's not in heaven so that we can't get to heaven. It's not across the ocean so that we can't get to it. He says the word is in our heart and our mouth. It's near to us. It's never afar off. The Lord has put these things in us. And to some degree, if we don't get it, it's because we have blocked the path. It's in us. It's never far away. It's always right there. The spirit is right there. And I'm sure you've all had something similar happen where you're talking along to somebody and, you know, involved in this giant discussion about the Lord and whatever, you know, whatever the important issue is. And you just start saying stuff and you look around and go, wow, that was really good. Who put those words in my mouth? You know, well, that's the spirit there. The word of God is never far off, but we, we tend to mute it. And the things that we do and the things that we think and the things that we see, the things that we watch tend to mute it, but it's right there. We can't say, oh, I can't get to it. Nobody ever told me it's too far away. It's too hard. It's too difficult. I don't understand it. We can't say that because it's not true. We have it. We just need to plug into it. Okay, so this particular Torah portion ends with these five verses in Deuteronomy chapter 30. It says, see, I have set before you this day life and good and death and evil. In that I command thee this day to love thy Lord thy God and to walk in his ways and keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that you may live and multiply. So the Lord thy God shall bless thee in the land wherever you go to possess it. But if your heart turns away so that you will not hear, but shall be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I denounce unto you this day that you shall surely perish that you shall not prolong your days upon the land, whether you pass over the Jordan to go possess it. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that both you and your seed may live, that thou may love the Lord thy God, and that thou mayest obey his voice, and that thou mayest cleave unto him, for he is your life, and the length of your days, that you may dwell in the land which the Lord sware unto the Father, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give. So I don't really need to comment on that. That's pretty much says it all. <laughs> he lays before you life and death. Choose life. Follow the Lord. Pretty simple. And these, keep in mind the context. Moses is dying the next day. He's going to go up unto Pisgah. The Lord's taken him out. That's it. He's had his son 20 years. So what's the most important thing he can tell you? These are this, this week and next week and the week after that. This is the day of Moses' death. These are the things that he wants most for you to know. So that's what he wants most for you to know. 